Ooh, what is that music? Do you hear that, Steve? Uh, not on my end, but it might be on the broadcast. <laughs> hey, everybody, Dan Schinder here with... Steven Schinder. And we are a father-son podcast vlog thingy talking about, yes, it's called Yes Shift and everything Yes related, which is a lot. And today is the 50th anniversary of King Crimson's Lark's Tongues and Aspic. Steve, take it. This is huge. Right. And the thing that makes this Yes related is, of course, it was Bill Bruford's first album with King Crimson. Oh, yeah. Bill yeah, from Yes. Yeah, and it was their fifth album, which, it, and with Yes, like, they had just released their fifth album, Close to the Edge, which was the last one Bill did at the time. So it's interesting how the paths are similar in terms of quantity up to that point, but very much different musically, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. But at the same time, uh, somewhat similar because they're just so out there and adventurous and it's almost impossible to put music out like that these days with a major label in fact i'd say it's impossible but it gets out there but i don't think anyone man i hate to say this people are gonna bag on me but that's fine um <laughs> i, don't I think feel like this is probably gonna be the same conversation we've had on the show like time and time again but go on i, I just don't think people are that creative anymore or let me put it a different way. That's not fair. People don't take these risks anymore because they want their music to sell. So they cater to the pablometers and, and, and other people who just want something more acceptable or more commercial or whatever. And there's still other great stuff out there that falls into this category, but you got to release it yourself, promote it yourself, pay for it yourself and all of that. And it only gets that far. It does not get on mainstream radio. I remember back in 1979, 80, 81, driving around and there was a station all the way to the right, K-West in, in Los Angeles, California, that played full sides of Tales from Topographic Oceans. Never will that happen again, other than <laughs> on Yes Shift, possibly. You know, I mean, it just, so that's where I'm coming from. And, and that's for context, really, more than anything. Right. Like people do take risks, but they'd probably be independent, like not on a popular label. And like people are still creative, but it doesn't feel like the first time people hear something and they're like, oh, wow, you can do that. It's more like if people hear something creative today, it's like, oh, wow, that's incredible. But also, of course, they'd be able to do that today. What with what we've had in the past and what we're able to do now. So that's kind of how I view it. Yeah, and I think a modern day version of that is Chromatics, the band that you turn me on to. I think they're very much in that vein. You, there's no one else that sounds like them. There's no one else that's doing what they're doing, yet it's very easy to listen to. Um, I think for almost anybody, whereas Close to the Edge or Lark's Tongues would be like, for, for most average music fans, that aren't into those independent or individual musicians could not get their heads around it, you know? Right. Um, like, I'm trying to think of other recent examples. I think E Molecule and it's hard, sounded right? very unique, didn't Who? it? Who? E Molecule with uh, oh, Simon yeah, Collins. Oh, yeah, with Simon Collins. That's, absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. Right. But um, getting back to this album, I guess we should go through the context of like what was going on around that time of yeah. 50 years ago. Like, wow, so long ago. <laughs> I know, um, it's crazy. Yeah. So King Crimson's previous studio album, Islands, had come out December 1971. And following the tour for that album, uh, like I think it was like beginning of April 72, uh, Robert Fripp parted ways with Mel Collins, Boz Burrell, Ian Wallace, and Peter Sinfield. And then the live album Earthbound came out in June of that year. And uh, there was a nice post from the DGM Live website uh, about 
Lark's Tongue's 50th anniversary today, so they had some nice info on there that we were able to pull from. Um, although Robert Fripp and Bill Bruford had discussed working together since Crimson supported Yes earlier in February 1972 in Boston, it wasn't until May that the pair undertook some exploratory jamming at Bruford's house. And there's a quote from a Bruford saying, we went into my music room and Robert said, if I played this, what would you play? Um, and then he says, apparently I must have done the right thing because eventually he suggested that we do some more. Um, and then Fripp says, I hadn't up until that time thought of asking Bill because as we all know, he had a good gig with Yes. Um, and at this stage, it was by no means certain that King Crimson would be resurrected because, uh, you know, reforming with a new lineup type thing. And, and th let's pause there for a moment. Can you imagine okay. if King Crimson had ended there with the, well, whatever we want to call it, breakup, dismissal, parting of ways with those other players, had that, had that, think of all the music that's come from the different lineups since then, even like three of a perfect pair, completely different lineup. The only other one member is Bruford, of course, from this lineup, but you got Adrian Blue, you got Tony Levin, and the subsequent albums, the albums with two drummers, three drummers. I mean, the, I think this album is the, the way Rick Wakeman says, yes, would not have carried on without 90125. And oh, I wow. think this album is sort of that, you know, this resurrection paved the way for the next 50 years, if you will. Yeah, I do kind of wonder, like, if they had stopped here, would they still have tried reforming in the 80s? And would Bill have been part of that still? Like, it's, it's, yeah, we can't really know, but it's an interesting, like, what if to think about. Yeah. Um. So... Uh, that website also said it, it was while a guest in the Bruford household and sitting in the bath, no less, that the notion of a two-drum lineup came to Fripp. Uh, and Robert Fripp said, I suddenly thought, well, Bill's a lovely drummer, but he's perhaps a little too straight for some things. Then I thought of this nut Jamie Yeah, because Close to the Edge is so teen pop music. <laughs> <laughs> then so I, I thought of the Osmonds and the Partridge family and Bay City Rollers. Right. Uh, then I thought of this nut, Jamie Muir, whom I just met, and I thought, well, Jamie's a great drummer, but he's not really straight enough for some of the things I'd like him to do. Now, while I was sitting in the bath, I suddenly had this vivid idea to use the two of them, and it seemed so right. Um, and and wow, what a combination. Yeah, and uh, then there's this bit about John Wetton... Um, so he had been in a band called Family, and he appeared on their albums Fearless, which came out October 71, and Bandstand, which would come out September 72. Uh, so there's this quote from John Wetton saying, One day the phone rang and Robert said, I'm round at Bill Bruford's. Uh, he lived around the corner from me in Redcliffe Gardens, and we're discussing the possibility of doing something. Do you want to pop around? So I did. I remember Bill came to the door with a carrot in his hand. I thought it felt good as soon as we started talking, and so we put the ball in motion. I was actually in the studio with family working on bandstand, and Bill had been working with Yes doing Close to the Edge. It wasn't a jam or anything. We just sat and talked about what we wanted to do. You know what? I gotta what? interject. Let's mail Bill a carrot and say, here's to 50 oh years gosh. of Lark's Tongues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the carrot will be all rotted by the time it gets there, and he'll be like, what the hell is this? <laughs> Send a purple one. He won't know the difference. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and then on July 19th, 1972, is when both Bruford and Wetton broke the news of their decisions to leave Yes and family. July 22nd, the new lineup, which included Jimmy Muir and David Cross as well, made front page news of Melody Maker. Um, the headline was Yes Man to Join Crimson. And of course, Close to the Edge came out in September, uh, September 13th that year. Uh, some of Lark's Tongues in Aspic, you know, the music piece, was showcased on Beat Club in October. Um, 
And David Cross recalls being nervous during this recording. Um, and did you say the, why? Uh, I think because like the exposure or yeah, the, the exposure like and having to like maintain eye contact and not mess up and whatnot. Mm. Um, and then the album itself was recorded January and February 1973 and released March 23rd that year. Uh, a week after the album's release, though, Muir left the band saying it's due to an onstage injury, but in fact, uh, he wanted to join a monastery. And other stuff going on at that time, Pink Floyd put out Dark Side of the Moon that month, uh, which we talked about a bit recently. Yeah, a lot of people and, might not be familiar with that, but it had some pretty cool music on it. Yeah. <laughs> for context. Yeah. And then, uh, of course, a year later, King Crimson's next album, Starless and Bible Black, would feature mostly the same lineup minus Jamie. So uh, that's kind of where, yeah, that's the context for Larks. Yeah. And I have um, the, the album cover up, which I know you'll ask about, but... Um, it's interesting to me, and we'll get into the album cover, but the first thing I just want to mention, before I go check, I'll have to get up because my dogs are going nuts, and i got to see why. But it's interesting how the imagery on the album cover has nothing to do with the title. And we see that a lot, but this is like... You know what Aspic is, Steve? It's like some sort of jelly, right? Yeah, like you might choose aspic instead of pate for instance okay um yeah. and and so looking at the album cover it's like huh <laughs> but i'll carry on i'll be right back i it's so crazy i gotta check and just make sure everything's all right okay i want to make sure they're not eating anybody that jumped over the wall which would be okay with me if they jumped over the wall but i'll be right back <laughs> right so look at live comments i see doug curran says hello from columbus ohio uh hi doug glad to have you tuning in uh, so yeah, this album is very monumental, and I'll just read the track list real quick. So on side A, we have Lark's Tongues in Aspect Part 1, Book of Saturday, and Exiles. And then side B, we have Easy Money, The Talking Drum, and Lark's Tongues in Aspect Part 2. And of course, our personnel, we have Robert Fripp, Electric Acoustic Guitars, Mellotron, Honair, Pianet, and Devices, uh, John Wetton, Bass, Vocals, and Piano on Exiles, Bill Bruford, of course, Drums, Timbalas, Cowbell, Woodblock, and David Cross on Violin, Viola, Mellotron, Honair, Pianet, and Flute on Exiles, and Jamie Muir on Percussion, Drums, and in quotes it says, All Sorts, um, Assorted Found Items, and Sundry Instruments, Auto Harp on Lark's Tongues, Part 1, and we also have Richard Palmer James, who did the lyrics, uh, Rick, Nick Ryan, sorry, did engineering, and Tantra Designs did the album cover. Um, oh, okay, you're back, Dad. So I read the track list and the personnel. So I guess we could go into how we got into King Crimson and discovered this album. My trajectory was pretty straightforward. I uh, started exploring King Crimson's discography in 2008 and went through it like through 2009. Um, after listening to Asia and wanting to branch out to other prog bands that were sort of related. So how did you get into King Crimson and where did this album fall into that whole thing? It was really following the path of Bill Bruford having been, you know, I'm a little older than you, so <laughs> having been an right. <laughs> early Yes fan and close to the edge and then finding out that he left and this and that, it was really sort of like, what would you go do? Like, wh why would you leave that? Yeah. And the, the interesting conversation that I thought of earlier today with that is that, you know, Bill says in his book and to us in his interview, he left because it was like, what else do you do after that? But then you listen to this album and you listen to the title track and it all makes sense like okay yeah but what's interesting to me is this and i'll get back to more direct of the answer but he left 
yes, because he felt close to the edge was the pinnacle and there was nothing left to do, yet you listen to the title track of Lark's Tongues in Aspic and it's like, okay, why didn't you think the same thing after that track? Because it is so esoteric and out there and I hope no one bags on me for this. I hate making comparisons, but sometimes we have to. It reminds me, there's elements that remind me of early, early Pink Floyd, Adam Hart, Mother, the stuff on Moore, mm -hmm. Umago. There, there's aspects of that. And it was recorded yeah. with the same technology of the time. So there's some of those reminiscent production qualities or sounds sonically and whatnot. Um, so that's what got me into them. But honestly, I sort of broke away and didn't listen to them for years until Three of a Perfect Pair came out. And then I went and saw that at the Greek Theater in Los Angeles. I'll never forget that night. It was so good. And then the DVD came out. It's one of my favorite, favorite, favorite concert films. It's just, it's great. It really is. And the evolution between those, what, two or three decades, sorry, I don't have the math in my head right now, is, is just amazing that they still stayed relevant. They still stayed true to the spirit of King Crimson, even though they, they modernized. Not a lot of bands go through so many personnel changes and last decades and can still make sense to even their current fans, let alone new fans. Kind of sounds like yes, now that I think about it. <laughs> <laughs> but Jethro Tull's a great example. You know, Jethro Tull and yes, they're probably the biggest music institutions, if you will. But if you mm -hmm. look at King Crimson and the lineup changes and whatnot, same thing, really. So I got into them early and then sort of went on a different path and then came back with uh, three of a perfect pair would have been, I think, 82 or 83, if I remember right. God, it just doesn't seem that long ago. Um, but yeah, that's... And, and now listening back to this album, I'm pointing back there because it's still on my laptop. I have listened to it probably eight times in the last three days. It's just mm -hmm. great. It really is. Yeah. Like, when I started listening to King Crimson, it, it felt so different from other stuff. You know, you have a 21st century schizoid man and... You were like 14... Um, yeah, I was around 14. Um, and like a year before that, maybe less, I'd heard Asia's cover of In the Court of the Crimson King. Um, is it a cover if John Wetton, well, that's, that's a, a weird question. thing. Like John Wetton was in the band, but he was not on that album. Like this was the first album. Right, Craig Lake did it. Yeah, so like In the Court of the Crimson King, the song sounded kind of it, it sounded really good and romantic and really tame compared to some of this other crimson stuff but yeah like king crimson came across very avant-garde and i was actually thinking about this earlier how my first uh recollection of hearing any king crimson is on the yes years uh, documentary you know the one i watched on vhs as a kid all the time and you know, over they, and over. And yeah, and some kids watch uh, 101 Dalmatians, like yeah. Steve's brother. But yeah, I watched that too. Yeah, but, yeah, but um, it was yes years for you. Yeah, and you know <laughs> they get to the part where they talk about close to the edge, and then Bill's departure and uh, leaving King for King Crimson, and then it cuts to um, like John Wetton singing easy money and i as a kid i always thought that sounded really abrupt and kind of random but like years later i'd understand the context better and like okay <laughs> so it's, he's talking about this band that he joined and they're showing a clip from that and uh that clip i believe is from like a june 1973 performance which uh can be found up on YouTube, I think. Uh, yeah, I think it was a European yeah. television thing, something like that. Yeah, it might have been in New York. Now that I'm looking oh, into really? it, but oh. yeah, but um, maybe it was broadcast in Europe. I don't know, but yeah, it was. It, it always seemed kind of random, like that and a silly woman from Ramshackled seemed out oh, of yeah. place in that documentary to me. Yeah, um, yeah, it's fascinating that that was my first ever 
imp- like memory of King Crimson. That's it's like funny that it stuck with you like that too. Yeah. Um, so with this album, like what are some of the standout moments for you? Like what's your overall impression with the direction they took here? Excuse me. Um, you know, looking at this photo, I was thinking about this earlier. When you look at this photo of the members um, and you look at the gear, it it's just the artistic license that they not only had back then, but they took is really what resonates with me. When I think of this and Close to the Edge, Tales from Topographic Oceans, um, uh, a passion play by Jethro Tull, you know, stuff Pink Floyd did in the early days, ELP. I don't think any of that's ever going to happen again, where you could just do whatever. And when we were getting ready for the show, I was looking at, um, let me see if it comes up again. I was looking at TikTok, and this video came up of Frank Zappa talking about and now I can't find it, it disappeared. Frank Zappa talking about some music came out in the 60s and some of that music got released. And the difference was that there were no boundaries, I'm paraphrasing, but there were no boundaries. People did what they wanted and the music executives were not young hip people. They were older fat guys chomping on cigars that said, well, this is what we have, let's put it out, let's see what happens. They were risk takers. They were business people in that regard with the entrepreneurial spirit to take risks. And nowadays it's run by, and he goes on and on. He says, we really need those people back. And Mm -hmm. I think that speaks to this music that we're talking about. And to answer your question, that standout moment is just that, that free license to just be creative, record it and get it out. No one's going to like everything. Okay. Anja and I, between the two of us have 11 kids and 19 grandkids. And I've learned even with just the four of mine, you can't please everybody with the same thing. So music's the same way. You never, I don't think, there are people that do record stuff to please as many people as possible, but I think the pleasing starts here. And bands and the music I just mentioned, that's what that was for. They were trying to please the populace. This is what they did, and this is what they put out. End of story. So that's what really stands out. But songs that I really dig, the title track, of course, Exiles, um, Easy Money, of course, to me is maybe the most commercial-type song, right? Yeah, it came out around the same time as Money by Pink Floyd. Yeah, and then, of course, he re-recorded or recorded a song later on the second UK album called Danger Money. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Yeah, (laughs) which is a great song, I think. Um, And then part two is great, the instrumental. So I just, it's been great revisiting this. It has. That's one of my favorite things about our show is we either discover new music or rediscover old music that I haven't listened to for literally decades. <laughs> I'm old yeah. enough to be able to say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you mentioned the bit about releasing music that pleases people. And uh, I, I, I get, kind of want to get to this question that we had, which was what kind of music listener would you recommend this to? Someone, the first thing that comes to my mind is someone with an open mind. Some mm. someone with an open mind. And to me, that's not someone that, quote, listens to everything. Because when I ask people, oh, so what kind of music are you into? Oh, I listen to everything. 99.732% <laughs> of the time, and I've done the math, those people don't even know what everything is. They don't know what this is. They don't know what Max Roach, the drums also waltzed. They don't know who Buddy Rich is. They don't. So it's really someone with an open mind or someone that takes acid and or mushrooms. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What about you? And what are your, some of your standout aspects of the album? Right. So first I'll address the listener thing. So I agree that it's not for, you know, some people can be very, wanting to explore when it comes to new music, but I don't think I would 
uh, show them this right away unless they were already into avant-garde stuff. You know, I feel like Stuff by Yes is um, a bit more accessible compared to this. Um, yep. If they're already a King Crimson fan, then yeah, they could probably get into this oh, right yeah. away. Yeah. Um, and I'll just read a few comments real quick before... Okay, and I just want to mention something you just said that I forgot to mention. When you said avant-garde, this album was right there with the early Pink Floyd stuff I was talking about, and that's what I meant to get to. This was almost yeah. the birth of avant-garde popular music, if that's even a term or a universe, if you will. Um, it's They could have toured together. And for all I know, they had. I don't know, but... Though you know, when I think of pink, early Pink Floyd and the petri dish Vaseline projections, and you know all the weird sound effects and and things like that, and and this King Crimson album in that era, they're all in the same bag to me. Mm. Yeah, like you mentioned, Adam Hart Mother, and that one is like its own world. Like yeah, and more was yeah. a soundtrack to a movie that they did. Yeah, that might have been the first popular popular band that did a soundtrack to a movie if you think about it yeah it's the earliest one i can think of at the moment yeah mm -hmm. um so andrew boyle said hello great show timeless excellent record uh doug curran says back in those days many stations played entire albums mostly at night say 10 11 or 12 midnight That's true i heard larks that way on the radio and it blew me away but I was a longtime fan of King Crimson since first hearing them on the radio in 1970. Their first album was a monster and will always be my favorite of theirs. As a Yes fan, I was bummed that Bill left, but very happy to hear him with Crimson. He was the perfect fit at the time. And then um, Andrew chimes in again saying, Ha, Dan is so right. The 70s music industry people were risk takers. Let the artists do what they want. Today, it's all about clothes, looks, and auto-tune singing. If I may interject, and thank you, Andrew, the funny thing is, is they didn't, uh, I'm guessing, because I didn't, see themselves as risk takers. They just did what they did. And back then, it was more, there was more latitude for it. So it's interesting that in hindsight, it absolutely looks like risk taking. But back then, I don't know if they had that perspective like good let's put this out and see what happens it's just what they did you know one of my favorite right. albums ever is a passion play and you could never put that out today <laughs> never you couldn't do it right well at least not on like popular stations today right but even if you put it out today i don't think anyone born after 1970 something would even get their head around it because if they were born in 1970 they'd have to be 85 before they were 15 and even by then it would be antiquated by the standards of 1985 music if that makes sense think of what was happening in 1980 well not that you were there but you, you know <laughs> you you know the timeline of music so andrew i i think that's an interesting almost a whole show of a conversation if you will examining the music of the 60s and 70s right but as far as my favorite tracks, um, you know, the title tracks definitely stand out. And those, I mean, for a casual listener, I think people expect the first track to at least have vocals on it right away. But on the first track, like you don't really hear any voices until like the very end. So that in itself feels like kind of a risk to me. Um, like it's onto a book of Saturday that you get to hear much of Wetton and then Exiles. Yeah, I think there's like so, I, I so, miss John Wetton, like his romantic sounding voice and songs like these. You know, it's just yeah. It's, I I want to yeah. mention that what you just said is unusual now, but back then we had Close to the Edge, Tales from Topographic Oceans, we had The Gates of Delirium. We right. had Passion Play, anything from Dark Side of the Moon. Most of that stuff had long musical buildups, and then there was the voice. Right. So if you think about it, it was right there with the template of the times. Yeah, but um, I feel like here there's longer durations of yeah. instrumental stuff. So it's that's... almost like the vocals are intermittent. Yeah. Um, 
And the talking drum, like the beginning of that has kind of this like windy feel that kind of reminds me of South Side of the Sky. So, it, you know, listening to this album, I think in my head, I kind of had in mind that maybe Relayer and Fragile are, have some stuff on them that make them feel like the closest yes music to sounding like King Crimson. Like it's still pretty far away, but I feel like there's elements on both those albums and maybe the yes song then as well but yeah that thought also came to mind you know i want to take a three-month sabbatical and just and go to west africa and and jam with the people there during the day and at night just dive into all this music we're talking about from the early to late 60s into the mid 70s of tall and yes and king crimson and pink floyd and listen to all of it mixed together and not be bothered with any business or anything else because i think that it's like sitting in a pool of water all mm -hmm. you feel is the water as opposed to once in a while at night putting a record on or a record or you know what i mean <laughs> and you're being misted with some moisture as opposed to just immersing in it, you know? I just want to do that so badly. Yeah, I totally get what you mean. Because like your senses are more open. Yeah, your yeah. senses are more open to take it all in rather than dealing about, oh, I got to get on this Zoom call, I got a phone call, got to pay this bill, got to, oh, what about this that's happening with the business? Those are such distractions that if we could go back to, like when I was a kid and in high school or junior high, and all I had to worry about was pretty much school and schoolwork, some stuff around the house and being a musician, I just put on albums and listen to them over and over and over and let it just ma just marinate in that music. Yeah. And this is one of those albums that, you know, I'm listening to it as a, well, few days away from being 60 years old with two busy businesses and all these big projects and kind of trying to take it in with yeah. this cellular wall around me of all that other shit. <laughs> good shit but you know i'd i'd much rather just take a vacay and just put this stuff on and just soak it in like an enemy <laughs> eating you know whatever they eat whatever you know what i mean right yeah yeah i get what you mean um and i also appreciate the choice of going with a violinist for oh this yeah album it really added some unique textures and because when you think of a rock band of any kind, the violin isn't the first instrument you think of, is it? Well, it's the second. I'd say drums, violin, electric guitar, electric bass, bobo. <laughs> Just kidding. No, you're right. So how many other rock bands have had a violinist? UK, so there's a clear tie-in there. Frank right. Zappa, where Eddie came from. Um, Kansas is probably the first... Oh, yeah band that commercialized that right right yeah i mean if you think about it and and there's um rush had a feature on signals with that song i forgot but you're right it's it's it was unusual back then but was it unusual back then it's more unusual now but was it back then was like hey they threw in a violin right because you also <laughs> you know jet you also had Jethro Tull at the time and oh, you yeah, know, with the band. utilizing the flute and that, like you right. don't think about that today, but back then it was might have been kind of like, oh yeah, sure, do right. that. And whatever. Eddie joined uh, Jethro Tull for an album. Yeah. Um, so another question I had was, because uh, this album, Lark's Tongues and Aspic, it begins with part one and ends with part two. So... You know, we recently talked about, I think it was on the Promise Ring episode, like the idea of whether a title be track a... can be, a, should always be like the first track or if it can be an ending track. And here we kind of have both. the best of both worlds. Yeah. So, but my question is, um, could both of these parts have been one epic on one side? And I did the math and they could fit on one oh. side, but... Could they have done this, or was it a good idea to split that? No, I never thought of that. Now that you mention it, I say yes, no pun intended. <laughs> and I'd love to hear an edit of that. W which side would you put it on, side A or side B? 
these days, side B, back then, side A. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, if it's all on side B, it's technically the final track, you know. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. What's with my dogs? Hopefully, Enja's home, and that's what they're barking at. I don't know. My yeah, dogs I don't, are just... I don't hear them on my end. So. Okay, good, good. Right. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I quite like that they bookend the album, though. Um, yeah. Because you kind of end on as equally an experimental note as what you begin with, you know? So that, that's kind of my take on it. Well, didn't... Uh, was it... On the first UK album, there's a reprise, but I can't remember if it's last. Um, let me look that up real and, quick. And Rush did that on the Signals album as well. What are you guys barking at, baby? <laughs> baby. <laughs> um, that, that sounds familiar. And while you do that, yeah. can I start reading some fan comments? Right. Um, okay, I don't have that handy, so let's just like move on to fan okay. comments. Yeah. yeah, fan comments. Nick... Kokoshis, I hope I got that right, Nick, says, I bought Lark's Tongues solely because Bruford's name was on the cover, but it was percussionist Jamie Muir that blew my mind. Lark's Tongues Part 1 is one of my all-time favorite prog tracks. From the African kalimba to the murmuring voices, it was like nothing else I had ever heard. I love that. In fact, the other night, watch, my dog's going to freak out. It's okay, baby. I put it on and got my new rain stick and I could not help myself while that was playing exactly what Nick is referring to. This just felt so right to go with that. I just dug, dig that. But yeah, the atmospheric textures of that was probably never done before in popular music. Like he says with the, kalimba and some of those other things just so creative so i i dig that love it and steve major says the best lineup uh, that's subjective but cool tony jefferson our friend says one of my all-time favorite crimson albums jamie muir had a profound influence on bill and the way he played especially after jamie left the band the kalimba intro was intriguing to me because earth wind and fire started using the kalimba in their music a few years earlier and they were already one of my favorite groups. Very cool take. Yeah, and I'll read a few recent live comments before moving on to the next one. So okay. uh, Doug Curran, uh, I believe this was in reference to our uh, discussion of bands with violinists. Uh, he mentioned Curve Air in Kansas and said, check out the band, It's a Beautiful Day for some great violin. Mm. Um, and Andrew Boyle said, I think Wetton and Bruford wanted Jobson to have that violin in UK. So, yeah. Uh, so this next comment, uh, oh, Andrew again says, was epic, genius of Fripp, the prog scene was explosive, King Crimson had a few winners, a prog masterpiece, maybe better than Red. Um, and then David almost says, one of my top 10 albums and definitely a great headphone album. Oh, remember, yeah. I haven't remember, done that yet. I got to do that. Yeah. Remember many evenings listening to this album. Um, Kevin Ward says, I remember the opening track terrifying my dad when he happened to be coming into my room right when the heavy part kicks in. So, of course, I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of want to comment on that. So... <laughs> Listening to this album, I, I can definitely see how it could be terrifying to someone. And I did listen to this on headphones, um, and it, it was on the penultimate track, I believe. Um, um, what was it? Oh, the Talking Drum. I, I think that one ended on like kind of a, a loud sounding note that was kind of scary. So like, if you have the volume up, it'll kind of like... You, you know what it was for me as a kid? So I was like eight, I think, when Led Zeppelin three came out. And the last track, Hats Off to Roy Harper, the beginning of that scared the crap out of me. <laughs> it just, with all the echoing and the weird, that was just spooky. And I think I have something in my cellular makeup now because if I accidentally hear that, I'm like, ah! <laughs> yeah i think there are some spooky moments on the title tracks as well but 
Yeah, that, that's why I might be a little bit hesitant to play this to a casual music listener. Oh, like they'd, th have to, they'd have to listen to a few other things before pushing them into the deep end, you know? Totally. Deep end is right. I think it could be traumatic. So I, folks, for those of you who don't know, I live in a small, small, they call it a city because it's incorporated. My wife and I, it's hard to say city. We live in a small town in the mountains east of Phoenix. And there's 7,200 people here. And almost every place you go into, it's the same music and it's country music. If I were to walk in with a boom box on my shoulder playing this or any of the things we've <laughs> mentioned, it's like the, the town would scatter like turning on the lights with cockroaches on the floor. It'd be like we'd have the whole place to ourselves or they'd run us out of town. Right. It'd be like, like devil music or something. Yeah, I was just about to say they'd say this is devil's music yeah. type thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, same with Gates of Delirium. You could get that oh reaction my God. as well. <laughs> those scary moments, those freaked me out when I was a kid because 75, 76, I would have been 12, 13. And even at that mature age, the, during the battle scene, the yeah. in the background, I was like, <laughs> oh, what the fuck's going on there? Yeah. <laughs> with headphones turned up loud. Right. Uh, so getting back to the fan comments, you all read Fred's there? Yeah, starting with Fred Beaulieu says, groundbreaking, not a bad track on the album, Rocked My World. I'd be curious if these people are watching on the live or archive. I'd love to know for context people's ages when they comment, because yeah. I think that matters, don't you? Yeah, I, I think most of the people are like maybe around your generation. Yeah, most people your age are unaware of this, let alone would embrace it. So I'd love to know. But cool. Thanks, Fred. Chris Hunter says, easy money is pure crimson. That's a good take. Frank Dulce says, heard it for the first time in my friend's UCLA dorm room. I remember feeling spooked by it. <laughs> I didn't understand. What were you on, I wonder? I didn't understand what I was hearing. The dissonance was truly frightening. Now it is one of my all-time faves. I, I freaking love that. That's that's great. Um, Howard Collings says, my memories are that I wanted to see Yes Live with Bruford and instead saw Bruford with King Crimson when they performed Lark's Tongues and Aspect in its entirety. At, ooh, in its entirety? I can't even imagine. No one does that anymore unless it's Yes with the Album series. But other than that, <laughs> you just don't see that anymore. You certainly didn't see it with Tormato and Awaken. We'll leave that there. Um, Birmingham <laughs> Town Hall in the early 70s. And Yes with White at Trentham Gardens, where they performed Close to the Edge and Tales in their entirety. I have that bootleg. With Roundabout as their encore. I have that. As Lark Tongue's album... I purchased it the moment it was released on vinyl and played it to death. I love that. That's cool. Yeah, so this album definitely has its fans. I did see one person say the first King Crimson album was kind of it for them, and they kind of weren't into what came after. And someone else said they tried listening to this album, but just would prefer listening to Yes and Gentle Giant. So it's not uh, I left that Gentle Giant out of that whole conversation gentle giant for sure my yeah. favorite gentle giant album is uh the first if it's the first gentle giant live album and there's two great concerts online from the same tour and then one a couple years later 1978 or 80 but whole other discussions but wow how did i forget them but i have a question for you sure from your you know, this is sort of a generational thing, I I think, or rather generationally, we might get different answers. But from your exploration at ripe 28 years old through prog rock and everything, what effect do you think this album had on prog music from that time onward? Through the night, <laughs> onward. Oh. I, I feel like... If anything, it may have influenced some lesser-known bands to experiment because I'm kind of hard-pressed to think of like more popular bands at the time that got this out there, you know? Yeah. Um, and as the 70s got further, it was more like some would gravitate more toward punk in like the late 70s. So The birth of punk, yeah. 
Yeah, so I kind of feel like if there were influences, it'd probably be like some underground thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I think that um, this was right in line. I'm sorry, what was the year again? The release? Uh, this came 73? out in 73. 73. So right around that time, all that other music I mentioned, you got, like you said, Dark Side of the Moon. I think a passion play was yeah, passion play came out later that year yeah and the interesting thing is that alan white joined yes did the close to the edge tour and then for the first album we're going to put the bible to music as john says yeah <laughs> and they do the double album and then uh if i remember correctly barrymore barlow i think passion play is his second album with toll so here's these drummers that join a band bill bruford with lark songs that that's a weird interesting coincidence right there i think you know, yeah. um, just to join something that ends up being so out there. Back then, most people, I think, the average music fan would have thought a drummer goes boom, ka, ba boom, boom, ka, boom, ka, ba boom. Not all this other weird stuff with a kalimba and the percussionist and the talking drum and the timpani drums and gongs and all the things that they were all those people I mentioned doing back then. Not to mention, of course, John Weathers with General Giant, who we've got to get on the show by the way. Yeah. At least on Trump Talk TV. Right, yeah. yeah. But this makes um, me want to go go back in time. Like, if there's anything that makes me wish, and I say that lightly because I'm very happy with my life, happy with the children I have, including Steve, <laughs> and, and my businesses and my wife and the dogs and the cat. You know, you should never have regrets. But if I could be born in another time, it would be to be 15 years younger when this music was being birthed and it was acceptable and and I would love to have been a part of it then and I'm now I what year is it 2023 20, and I'm yeah. turning 60 and this is still my favorite kind of music for the most part that I like yeah. to play other than Zeppelin and Deep Purple I'm like way back there there's there's very little contemporary music that I'm really really into or have really, really immersed myself into, let alone really play. I think the most contemporary music I play is Sowing the Seeds of Love album by Tears for Fears to me is amazing. Anything by Genesis, anything by Rush, anything by Yes in the later years. Other than that, I don't know what the fuck's going on. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Um, in terms of age, I saw that Doug Curran said he's 64. Oh, okay, uh, cool. Yeah, Adam Parrish says, hi, guys. Hope you are well. Uh, thanks, Adam, for chiming in. Yeah, Adam. Um, yeah. Uh, did you have anything else you want to say about the cover art for Lark's Tongues and Aspects? You know, I, I kind of had a comment. But, yeah, yeah, let's bring it up. Good question. Uh, I'll say it's beautifully simplistic. And if I may, um, I'm a big fan of the smiling sun. Yeah, it's, he's it's, showing the uh, he's showing his smiling son tattoo on his yeah, shoulder. Yeah, for those right listening now. audio, and I actually designed that myself. I was forty two or forty four when I got that, and I thought, what could I get that when I'm eighty five I wouldn't go? What the fuck was I thinking? And I thought, <laughs> I, I'm a happy, positive person, and I've always, since I was a little kid, been enamored with the smiling sun symbol. So when I saw this album cover, it just it literally resonated with me. But it's simplistic has nothing to do with the title track <laughs> yeah the, what, what do you think yeah the cover art with a sun like automatically makes me think of medieval times because you know monty python and the holy grail and king arthur's which, shirt yeah yeah and like all the like <laughs> sun imagery and the way it's drawn on those types of things always reminds me of you because like you're very much into that so i guess in a way this album cover is kind of the most nostalgic feeling because it reminds me of when i was a kid and seeing that imagery type thing so yeah yeah um the smiling sun struck me the first time when i was a little kid like four five six at fallbrook square the west end of the san fernando valley part of los angeles folks there was a montgomery ward and when you came up the stairs the, the escalator there was a beautiful relief mosaic thing and it had a big smiling sun and i always just thought that was so ethereal and magical and it really stuck with me but the other thing you mentioned with the sun and the moon i just mentioned it tears for fears sowing the seeds of love that album 
the second to last track, the big climax, the sun and the moon, the wind and the rain. <laughs> just love it. There's just something about that. And you know what? I think it's because it's part of our organic DNA. We all see the sun every day. We all see the moon, not every night, but when it's out, hopefully, and there's no clouds. There's something about that that's part of our our everyday environment, you know? Yeah, and that's why Teletubbies with the baby smiling sun was so popular. <laughs> but what <laughs> what is with the the, the what's the, with the pretzel puzzle of the title of the album being so removed from the album cover or vice versa? What do you make of that and what's your opinion of that? How representative should the packaging be of what's inside? And as an author who writes novels, same thing. Well, the cover should definitely reflect the feel of the thing. I think so. Um, yeah. This does not. Yeah, like, I, I feel like I'm kind of midway, but I'm like on the fence because I'm so used to this being associated with this album that's kind of like what it is. But I do think the imagery could have gone more surreal and like, sort of... would you have put Lark's tongues in aspic yes. on the <laughs> like on a fancy table, someone dipping a cracker in it or a biscuit, like spreading like yeah. Uh, otherwise, yeah, I, I can imagine a nice painting of that with like swirls and stuff. Yeah. yeah. So here's another question: Is this cover representing something we're completely overlooking, like a lyrical passage? or a specific lyric in one of the songs. I just thought of that. Because sometimes people will do that, where the cover is just mentioning a certain song, not necessarily the cover song right. or a lyrical passage. Like Relayer comes from the album before. Right. Relayer. Yeah, I haven't um, looked up anything regarding like the decision for the album cover. So I'm kind of ignorant of that. Whereas with the yes, it's like, I know that like the back of my hand, but yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting choice to say the least. Yeah. Um, so, uh, where do you think this fits like within or like, how, how do you perceive this? Like, when you look at Bill Bruford's overall music journey? Oh, wow, that's a great question. So I'm gonna answer it in a few ways. I think it's monumental for three things. It's monumental for Bill Bruford's journey, huge pivot. It's monumental for prog rock and it's monumental for King Crimson. Even if you prefer the later, latter King Crimson, like I love Three of a Perfect Pair that, like I said, that. That DVD, that concert film is one of my absolute favorites. And that's years after this. This is a huge, huge flag in the sand for prog rock, Bill Bruford, Robert Fripp, and King Crimson as a whole, I think. Yeah. Would, and avant-garde, if we could throw that in. It's a separate genre as well. Yeah, it definitely allowed him to branch out because... With Yes, he felt like he'd done everything he could with that band. He wanted to try something different and not be and, boxed necessarily. Yeah, and again, that boggles my mind that it would go to this and he'd say, okay, this is just the beginning. What? Right. <laughs> like to see beyond this is just mind boggling. Yeah, and you get, it does feel like what you would get in an imp improvisational jam. And, you know, Bill's a jazz guy. So this got him closer to being more of a jazz musician. Yeah, it fits his musical sensibilities, absolutely. Right. Yeah. But uh, speaking of Bill, there's also a recent headline yeah. over on BBC.com. Uh, uh, so it's Young Drummer Award winner from Colchester, Surprised by Hero. Um, I'll just read this real quick. It's very brief. And then drop the, the link in for folks. Yeah. Who seen it the 15 year old winner of a young drummer award was left in, was left shocked and speechless when he received a surprise call from his idol. BBC Essex secretly arranged for Tyler Baker from Colchester to have a video chat with 1970s prog rock star, Bill Bruford, who played with Yes, King Crimson and UK among others. 
He congratulated the teenager for winning the Mike Dolbear Young Drummer of the Year competition in February. Um, and there was like this video, which I mean, I mean, if I were that kid, like I probably would have reacted similar. Oh yeah, that much kid surprised. lost his mind. Yeah, what do you think of that whole thing? I think it's great that Bill is that kind of man to do that. I mean, I can only imagine being 15 and being surprised by John Bonham or Phil Collins or Alan White or Bill Bruford or any of my big heroes that I was studying and emulating at the time. So it, it's it's got to be like, if J.R.R. Tolkien was still alive and surprised you with a call, wouldn't you like lose yeah. it? You know, <laughs> there yeah, wouldn't I be would. enough toilet paper to wipe up you shitting yourself. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Sorry, folks. <laughs> yeah, and, and I like that. Um... Bill Bruford's YouTube channel is still curating stuff. Like recently, there's a Presto Vivance. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love and, that song. Yeah. And Reprise by UK. Uh, and that's this the is, piece uh, I was referring to earlier. Yeah. Yeah, I figured. And this is a Paris 2006 recording. And uh, tomorrow, uh, they're also posting um, ABW8's performance of And You and I in that video an evening of Yes Music Plus. So Also, and on yeah. the topic of UK, if I may say, uh, the next song I'm teaching my 16-year-old drum student is Nevermore from the oh, first wow. UK album. Yeah, that's very adventurous, especially with that off time. I love that. I love that instrumental part. It's a beautiful song that starts out so romantic. The the trill of Bill on the Pisces cymbals, they have such a signature shimmer to them. And that just the way that song just develops is just amazing. So we're going to dive deep on that. Yeah, th that's really cool. Um, so, and this is kind of a tangent, but like before we close out, um, and we could make a further comment on this album before it close out if you think of anything. But I, the other day uh, you were talking about how you had a couple of thoughts about Yes's talk album because it, it was its 29th anniversary recently and we'll do a deep dive on it for its 30th next year. But did you all go ahead and share the thoughts yeah. that kind of came to mind? Yeah, thank you. Let's do um, a little hint on that. So our friend and fan and friend Douglas Reed private messaged me with uh, something, you know, about the album. And he mentioned that um, the album didn't get a lot of radio play and wasn't really commercially recognized. So when I thought back to the tracks, I thought there's some commercial stuff on there. Walls is certainly the most commercial. And when I think yeah. back, I really agree with Douglas that that album was gravely overlooked. It also made history as far as I know, it is the very first album that was 100% recorded to hard disc, number one. Trevor Rabin has cited the fact that he went through a lot of uh, volume prescriptions because of the process. And number three, when I saw them at the Greek Theater, I think it was also the first concert where they experimented with it's going to be simulcasted on the local radio station, in that case at the time, KLOS in Los Angeles, where if you went to the concert, you could put on headphones and hear it. What the F word <laughs> is that all about? If you're at the concert, why would you do that? I, as, as crappy as I thought, sorry, as crappy as I thought Alan White's drums sounded, not his playing, but his drums sounded, and I had good seats, like cardboard boxes. I still want to be hit with the wind of sound of the live performance, not put in a, a radio transmission of the earbuds. So that's something we'll dive in deeper. We'll celebrate that album. We'll talk about the album cover, the lineup, the process. We'll dissect the songs, the sounds, and all of that. But I think that album deserves exactly what Douglas said it's missing, and that's to not be overlooked and bring it into conversation. Yeah, and like the album, like even though the production like sounds very of its time like it's inside a computer i still think out of the yes west stuff it has my favorite songwriting from that lineup so you know i agree absolutely i love it's also got a bigger fatter sound that they tried to get on big generator 
but somehow it was still squashed in a box, if you will. Whereas this is like they opened the doors for you to, okay, big generator, you're at the arena, but listening from the foyer through the doors. Whereas talk is they open the doors and let you into the arena. And there's this big, fat, pristine sound. It's great. Right, yeah. So you have anything else to say about Lark's tongues and aspect before we close out? No, because I'm speechless from it. <laughs> okay. How about you? <laughs> um, yeah, again, it's very, you know, it's it's not for the super casual listener. It's like if you really want to open your mind and listen to something that's very experimental. And I think it was a good addition to the King Crimson discography. Catalog, yeah. Yeah, and just what that lineup put out, like it was definitely a feat. Yeah, if Bruce Springsteen's your favorite artist, this might not be for you. And you're probably not even watching the show or listening. So there you go. And speaking of listening, you can follow us on anchor.com. I'm sorry, anchor.fm slash yes shift. If you're an audio listener, you can follow us if you dare to see us on YouTube at youtube.com slash at yes shift. And on Facebook, where we are live as we're recording this, at facebook.com slash yesshift. And you can write us with suggestions, complaints, whatever you want, at yesshiftpodcast at gmail.com. And going back to Anchor, you can even donate if you want. Just saying. Right. Yeah. Thanks for following what we do, everybody. We'll be back when... Uh, so we're going to see if we hear back about interview possibilities, but we're also putting something out uh, next weekend. So just follow the Facebook page and we'll announce what it is and you'll be in the loop. Thanks, everybody. Loop-de-loop, loop-de-loop. <laughs> Over and out.